every time Jeff does his children thing, I can't help but think of the man who described his church being like fudge, sweet with a few nuts. <laughs> it's okay, I like nuts. <laughs> this morning I do want to talk about the church, not so much what it is, but what it can be, what it's meant to be. To do that, we have to move beyond the things often that we look at, things that the world tells us are important, and that often are the things that draw in the crowds, like the buildings and the size, the programs, the activities, the productions. Uh, Defining the church by such things is like defining a family by its schedule and its possessions, which sadly some do. But we know it's much more than that. We have to look at something much more significant. Pastor Paul Knight from Grand Forks, North Dakota, said that his encounter with a small 10-year-old girl and a little church in Ethiopia wrecked his life. It started when he decided to sponsor a child through Compassion International, which for about $40 a month provides an education, food, clothing, medical treatment for the child, And Pastor Knight sponsors a 10-year-old girl in the village of Fish, Ethiopia. And while on a mission trip, he went to visit that girl in her home. He wanted to bring her some gifts, both for her and her mother, who was a single mother, who supported the two of them by running a bar out of their small one-room house. During the visit, it started to get late, and the house began to fill up with rowdy men from the community. And as it did so, his guide and translator grabbed his arm and said with a note of urgency, we have to leave now. Pastor Knight looked over at the 10-year-old girl and asked for more time to spend with her, but the crowd continued to get louder, and his guide said firmly, it's not safe for you here. We must leave now. Knight started to move, but then he stopped and he pointed to the girl and said, but what about my little girl? This is her home, the guide said. But, but will she be safe? It's not really safe, but it is her home. Pastor Knight was indignant, he said. What does that mean, it's not really safe? And the guide said, most likely it means everything you think it means. And now with tears in his eyes, Knight said, but what can she do? And the guide gently grabbed his arm and he said, we teach all the girls to do this. Scream and run to the church. And when you get to the church, you will find love and safety and shelter. And thinking back on that experience and those words to scream and run to the church to find love and safety and shelter, Pastor Knight says that encounter with a 10-year-old girl and a little church in Fish wrecked my life. It wrecked it in a beautiful way for the better, and now it's starting to wreck my church also. He says that he can no longer pastor and do church the same way anymore. He cannot follow Jesus or love others in the same way anymore. He and his church are coming to realize that it's not about the programs and the buildings and the activities and all the things which sometimes we pay so much attention to. At its most basic fundamental level, 
The church is people in relationship learning to care for God and one another. Jesus went so far as to say in John 13.35 that our success in learning to care for and love one another is going to, how we, going to be how we are recognized as his people. One of the seminal passages that talks about the true nature of the church is found in Mark chapter 3. It's an account of a time when Jesus was really busy. His popularity was growing. Everything and everywhere he went, people were flocking to see him, to hear him, to touch him. And it reached the point where there were so many people coming and growing and crowding around him that he barely had time to eat. And it's at that point that Mark 3.31 says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. The house was so crowded, however, that they couldn't get in to see him. So it says, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus asked, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated around him in a circle and said, Here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, for whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Shocking words to those who heard it. And a parent slap in the face to Mary and his brothers because especially in that culture, nothing was more important than family. Yet here, Jesus defines family, not by bloodline, but by faith. Which means the church is a place, not just for when we have everything under control, and things together, and things are good, but just the opposite. Home and family are where we know we can turn when things may not be so good. Family is where we can go when we're hurting, or confused, or uncertain, when it feels like our lives, or our marriages, or our children, or our health, or our finances are falling apart. When things just don't make sense for us, home and family, in their ideal, are where we can run and find love and safety and shelter, much as Pastor Knight learned. Jesus says that's what the church is meant to be. You are family. The world is broken. We don't have to look forward to see it, very far to see it. And when evil rears its ugly head, whether it's at a concert or soccer stadium in Paris or a hotel in Mali, this should be a place where people can turn to find love and safety and shelter. Because ultimately, with all our faults and our failings and our weaknesses, We are family. It's here that God is supposed to be found. We are his family, created to be in relationship, created to need one another. And that's evident from the very beginning of creation when the scripture says that as God created man, he said it's not good for him to be alone. And so he created Eve, and thus begins the family. Later, the same principle applies when he begins calling people to himself And with all their brokenness and sin, God knew that it was not good for them to be alone, and so he creates his church. In spite of that, as one writer put it, one of the besetting sins of American Christianity is a failure to take the church seriously. To see its essential role, a failure to see its essential role in the mission of God. 
I mean, that's seen just by the fact that less than half of those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ have any connection with his body at all. Like the story of the prodigal son, they want eternal life, their inheritance, but not the messiness that sometimes comes with family and relationships. Churchless Christians, freelance disciples, lone ranger Christianities, these type of terms are contradictions to God's word. And until the 20th century, really, that whole concept was unheard of, undreamed of by believers to think that they didn't need to be a part of a larger body, of a family of faith. Instead, our individualistic Jesus and me spirituality, which says faith is purely a personal matter between me and God, discounts the central place God gave to his body. First John is very clear when he says, how can anyone claim to love God when they don't love his people? Because the church primarily is not its programs and its organizations. It's not its large group gatherings meant to inspire and to edify and to motivate us to live better, happier lives. It's people of God in relationship with the Lord and with each other. That's what the church is. Growth into the likeness of Christ occurs through our life together learning to love one another and handle our differences and sometimes our disagreements together. Like the rest of the world, the church is made up of broken, sinful people, which means sometimes people will let us down, we'll be disappointed, we may be hurt, there may be others we disagree with. But doesn't that happen in our families all the time when we don't give up on them? We are his body, Scripture says that he died to redeem. Now, as I said, I'm speaking of the ideal, what the church is meant to be. We may fall short, but that's an ideal worth striving for, isn't it? Growing towards. Because if we're to realize our potential in the Christian faith, we have to do so within the context of community, within the family. That's one of the purposes of baptism. It's a celebration of new birth into the family of God. A reminder that we're not alone. That we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Paul Tournier went so far as to say there are two things we cannot do alone. One is we cannot get married, and the other is we cannot be a Christian. Because whether we admit it or not, God says we need each other. It's not good to be alone. And just as the child needs a home and a family to grow and develop, as believers, God says we are family. That is our purpose. The way he makes us to support and encourage, to know we don't stand alone, that we have a place to go to find love and safety and shelter. We are family, Scripture says, by virtue of our common faith. Jesus' call was the same to all of his disciples. Follow me, and as they followed him, they became something bigger than they were themselves. He spends three years uniting them together, helping them not to be divided by their differences, but strengthened by them. Differences that sometimes were really extreme. I mean, consider, one of the twelve is called Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were Jewish extremists. We would call them terrorists today. Committed to the overthrow of Rome by any means possible, 
usually by force. On the other hand, you have the, Jew, uh, the Roman sympathizer, Matthew, who worked for the Romans as a tax collector, collecting taxes from his own people. Humanly speaking, there's no way these two would have ever been found in the same room together without violence erupting. But in Christ, through that common faith, they became not just friends, but family, upon which he built his church. There are far many things in our lives and in our society that seeks to divide us. Everywhere we look, we see messages about our differences, different sex, different race, different religion, different politics. And that's the way the world operates, seeking to segment us by our differences. Yet the church is to be one place where we're called to come together regardless of our differences. In Christ, Paul tells the Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Now, he says, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, because it's our common faith that binds us together. And it doesn't mean we deny our differences, that we have to agree on everything, but it means what we share in Christ is greater than the things that would seek to drive us apart. Or as Paul says also in Ephesians, there's only one body and one spirit. You were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So we come from different backgrounds, different experiences, but in Christ we share one faith. And our differences are meant to be a source of strength, unity and diversity. They don't go away, but they bind us together. And we may have differences of opinion on how things are done, on who to vote for, on anything else, just like our earthly families, we have differences but what we share is far more important. We are family by virtue of our common faith. But we are also family by virtue of our common purpose. In Mark 3, Jesus' mother mother and brothers show up to see Jesus, and they're left standing outside while they wait for someone to go tell them that they're waiting for him. Now, to understand what's happening, you need to go back a few verses to see what's really happening, because it says when Jesus entered that house, the crowd gathered, and he became so busy, he wasn't even able to eat. And his family heard about this, and it says in verse 21, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. He went crazy. How could they understand him and his giving of himself so completely to his mission? He was getting busy, giving his time, his attention, preaching God's word, fulfilling God's will for his life, but he was neglecting the carpentry shop. It wasn't something they could understand, and it reached the point where he couldn't even eat, and so they went to take charge of him. How his words must have shocked those who heard him, especially his mother, the one who gave him birth, who nurtured and cared for him, and now he asks, but who is my mother? asking, who is my family? Those who do God's will. He defines true kinship, not by bloodline, but sharing a common work, a common purpose. Jesus wasn't depreciating or demeaning his family. He's elevating the church by likening it to the most significant, basic, essential element of society. 
How can people understand such a radical teaching as he defines the nature of that relationship as family when they're not a part of it? No longer are his disciples merely students, but they're a community with a depth of caring and acceptance that could only could be compared to what you find in a family. And if we take his call seriously to follow, then there may come a time in our own lives when our own family don't understand. My father said, why don't you give up your faith for a few years while you get things in order? Why do we insist on going to church when there's so many other things to do with our time? Why do we give to support the work of the church and the work of God when there are other things we can do with our money? Why do, don't we go out drinking like we used to go? How do people understand the power and working of God in our lives if they're not a part of it? We are family sharing a common purpose. We are family by virtue of a common faith, and we are family because we share a common father. There are groups we can belong to that may say a word or give some semblance of support during our times of crisis or trials. But in the ideal, who is going to be there when we really need them? If not God and his family. Charles Swindoll wrote something which speaks eloquently of this when he wrote, You may have lost your mom or your dad, a brother or a sister. And as helpful as the hospital staff or the physician tried to be, no one could minister to you like the people of the church. No one put their arms around you and said, I understand, like they did. Some of you can recall stumbling out of the physician's office, having heard the news about the disease that could take your life. It most likely was not a neighbor or some co-worker at the office who entered into your crisis and said, I understand. It was likely someone at your church. When your mate said, it's over, I'm leaving, and then walked out, who helped you cope in all the embarrassment, the rejection, the anger, and the disillusionment? You probably didn't receive comfort from someone at the local bar or your bridge club. Chances are good that there was somebody from your church who said, I've got a scar like that. And while you're hurting, I want you to know that I hurt with you. Even though you feel pushed out of society and shoved aside like a second-class bum, I understand your pain and I stand in defense of you. In fact, I love you. Remember when grief struck you at the deepest level. Remember when your loved one was put in the casket. Maybe the banker could tell you where you could find a loan to get you through the hard time. Maybe the insurance man helped you by bringing the check. Perhaps an attorney gave you sound advice, but who was there when the flowers wilted? Chances are good the person who spoke well of your departed loved one was the pastor of a church. The people who surrounded you and gave you hope to go on were church people. They understood your world. They brought light to your darkness. That's the way God designed the church. Remember disillusionment as a youth, crisis after crisis, and remember the youth pastor who believed in you when you didn't even believe in yourself? Remember the Sunday school teacher who said they loved you regardless? Remember not knowing exactly what you should do in your career and some pastor spoke directly from the scripture, cutting a clear path of purpose through your dense fog of confusion? What if there had never been a church? For remember, it wasn't some law office or from some doctor's waiting room, or even from some funeral home that your help came, quite likely your help to go on came from the church. That's what God intends it to be, the true church. And these are the same things 
we should be seeking to cultivate here as Christ's body, his church, his family. And that means sometimes lowering the facades we erect between one another, to accept each other's differences, to encourage one another to be faithful, simply to be there with one another in times of difficulty. It must be to be more than just welcoming someone and shaking their hand and smiling at them. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you care, if you love one another. That's transforming love through which we find acceptance and courage to grow, to look beyond ourselves. Because church is supposed to be a place we can run for safety and security and shelter and love. It's more than being nice and friendly. Paul told the Galatians, carry one another's burdens because it's in that way that you fulfill the whole law of Christ. It's an ideal worth striving for, isn't it? The work of salvation was accomplished on the cross. It makes all of this possible. The work of Christ brings down the barriers that would seek to separate and divide so that we can learn to be in relationship with one another, united by that common faith, that common purpose, that common Father to find love and safety and security. I want to end with words from a song that Ken Medema wrote from several years ago. It says, If this is not a place where tears are understood, then where shall I go to cry? And if this is not a place where my spirit can take wings, then where shall I go to fly? I don't need another place for trying to impress you with just how good and virtuous I am, oh no. I don't need another place for always being on top of things. Everybody knows that's a sham. I don't need another place for always wearing smiles, even when it's not the way I feel. I don't need another place to mouth the same old platitudes because everyone knows that's not real. So if this, speaking of the church, is not a place where my questions can be asked, then where shall I go to seek? And if this is not a place where my heart cry can be heard. Where, tell me where can I go to speak? So if this is not a place where tears are understood, where can I go to fly? Father, as we close our time of worship today, we do thank you. Sometimes we don't recognize that it is the church that you call family, that you've created and established through the coming the life, death, resurrection of your Son. And you've given us life in his name to be your people, bound together by that common faith, that common purpose, because you are our Father. We thank you, Father, that we have a family. May we truly be a place where everyone who comes can find love and safety and shelter, because you are in this place. In our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.